The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 10. Perhaps worth mentioning is the fact that this is this selling of things or money changing was not an incidental thing. It was actually part of the sacrificial operation in order for people to, to make their obligatory sacrifices at Passover time. They had to come in. They had to change coins because they were coming from various places where various coinages were used. They had to buy sacrificial animals. They didn't carry them with them on some, some of these long treks that brought them in from the outlying areas. Uh, and they had to... Uh, there was a lot of business that went on. This, the temple in Jerusalem was the center, was the commercial center of the city. It was the, it was the engine of economic activity in Jerusalem. Everything's centered around the temple. I mean, the temple made, was it was the tourist business, it was the selling of sacrificial things, it was a very big business. So Jesus goes in and turns over these, these tables. It's not as though he's, he's reforming. He's suggesting that the temple reform. I think he's going right to the heart of it. Without this, you can't operate the thing. And and clearly, Jesus is not... I mean, Jeremiah might have wanted to reform the, the temple. And somebody like Josiah might have reformed it uh, under his uh, prodding, which is what happened at the time of Jeremiah. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's having a confrontation with the temple. He's precipitating a confrontation uh, with the temple. And the chief priests and scribes look for a way to, to kill him, but they're afraid of the people. Shortly after that, Jesus gives the parable of the wicked tenants. And I think we have to see it in light of his confrontation with the temple. And you know this story, but uh, just briefly, it is that the vineyard owner leases out his vineyard to those who will... Who will uh, care for it and bring in its produce and when it's time for the harvest he sends a servant and they uh, beat him and send him away empty handed he can't he sent another servant they beat him and threw him out and sent him away empty handed he sent a third they did the same thing finally he said what shall I do I will send my beloved son which is a technical term just about in the New Testament I will send my beloved son surely they will have regard for him but the tenants saw him coming and talked among themselves and said he's the heir if we kill him we can have the property so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him and Jesus then then says what should the owner of the vineyard do he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others now the upshot of all this is that Jesus understands the difference between himself and the prophets. He also understands that he's going to be killed. Now, at one level, all the questions arise as to whether or not this parable goes back to the historical Jesus, uh, whether it's a product of the, of, of the early church, uh, and so on. I think it does go back to Jesus. But what, in what form, I have no idea. Luke tells us it goes back to Jesus. I'll accept Luke's expression in that regard. And what it says is that Jesus understands that he is related to the prophetic work, but that his work is radically different and more profound and decisive 
after him, there's not going to be another one. This parable can't go on. It doesn't go on to say, well, after that he sent his second son, or then he went himself, or something like that. It doesn't do that. This is it. This is decisive. Because it is the rejection of the, the one we're, we're about to find out who's the stone the builders rejected. It's the rejection of him that changes everything. Surely the reason Luke uses the parable here is because it prepares us for what is perhaps the most powerful verse. Well, I always say that, you know, but it is a very powerful verse in his gospel, which is, when they hear this, go this parable, uh, those to whom it is addressed say, heaven forbid that such a thing should happen, that, that God, this is clearly a story about how God would come in and take the, the covenant, the promise from Israel and give it to others, namely the whole world. And they say, heaven forbid. And he looked at them and said, Jesus looked at them and said, what does this text mean? So here's something he says. You take, you take this and ponder it. And it's a quotation from Isaiah. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Tremendous text. The, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And again, I think Gerard's work helps us understand this text at a level which uh, we haven't understood it before. And that is, the rejection of this stone is the act of building par excellence. If we think now not of architecture, uh, city planning, da-da-da, uh, and we think of culture building, culture building, the essential tool for culture building, is the little scapegoat mechanism that generates the solidarity which can then be elaborated into various cultural institutions. So the first key is generating solidarity, and the way to do that in the old order is by is by is by finding a a, a unanimous object of contempt. So the so the rejection of the stone and the building of culture are the same thing. So now he says the stone that the builders parentheses, of culture, rejected, has become the cornerstone of what? Of a new anthropology. A new anthropology. A new way of coming together. Unless you are gathered with me, you will be scattered. A new kind of community. Not the community that has a little secret that it doesn't want to look at, which is that it generated itself sacrificially but another kind of community. Before I get to the verses that Luke supplies, which underscore the danger that is implied by the revelation that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, before I quote those texts and think about that a little bit, I want to just quote some newspaper stories that indicate that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It means that the one, it means that the victim, means the old sacrificial victim, the old scapegoat victim, has become the criterion for making moral judgments. Now, 
There was an article about in July 25th, so this is what, uh, less than a month ago, in the New York Times about all the terrible things that are happening in the Balkans. And I'll read to you two paragraphs from that story. The first begins with a quotation from Peter Jennings of ABC News. It says, quote, We begin tonight with cruelty and outrage, said Peter Jennings on a not untypical evening on ABC. Dan Rather led off one CBS broadcast with the news that, quote, Bosnia tonight is the scene of brutality without end, end quote. And then the New York Times goes on. As a response to a catastrophe that has created peculiar political alliances, such indignation has no patented ideological caste. It expresses a mass medium's often admirable sympathy for victims wherever the camera finds them. The New York Times then quotes Jennings, another broadcast, in which he says, quote, Once again, Bosnian civilians are forced to flee their homes in terror, while Western European nations and the United States do nothing about it, end quote. So tremendous contempt for those who are not doing anything for the victim. These condemnations by the media are forcing or have tended to force some kind of action on the part of those who are being condemned for doing nothing which, of course, is appropriate. But as the New York Times points out, when the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, it's not easy to solve these problems because anything one does to champion the cause of the victims creates new victims. And so then you have a shift in the marker. And then the moral, the moral boomerang comes back on those who were trying to champion the cause of the victims and then therefore made victims and therefore became the victimizers. And so the whole thing begins to shift again. And so the New York Times article ends with, with the following. Quote, Russian Foreign Minister Kozirev, who opposes heavy bombing of the Serbs, was putting into words what the administration must be fearing when he predicted that, quote, this operation, one planned, will stop the first day CNN shows civilian casualties, end quote. President Clinton made a preemptive strike by saying he would not halt the proposed bombing even if American relief workers were killed or American air crews shot down. And then the Times says, perhaps. But for the White House, already in campaign throes and under bombardment by television on several fronts, there may be no safe haven from the camera, end quote. This is a little bit of an excursion. The point I'm trying to make is that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everything is morally judged on the, on the point, from the point of view of the victim. And that's the total change in human history. We don't realize what a radical change in human history that is. One more newspaper quote, which is an even more recent one, but first of all, I'll quote the verses that follow right after this, uh, this verse, this quotation, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Luke, we have the following verse spoken by Jesus. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. So, it's very good that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, but it's also a very ominous thing. The stone rejected becomes the cornerstone, becomes the stumbling block, becomes the stone that crushes 
scatters, broken to pieces. Again, we have the echo of this idea of being scattered. The sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Uh, there you have it. It begins to fall apart the st because the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So if we continue to engage in that kind of culture-building enterprise, which is always generated by some scapegoating uh, mechanism, then we'll just further disintegrate the cultural cohesion that, that's here. Apropos of which, one more article. This was on the front page of the New York Times earlier this week. I'm sure you saw something about this. Spy photos indicate mass graves at a Serb-held town. Spy photos now, see. So it says, let me just read a couple of paragraphs and reflect on it. The United States said today that it had spy photographs that it planned to make public of what appeared to be a mass grave where thousands of Muslim men and boys have been missing since they were rounded up after Bosnian Serbs seized the area last month. And then one final paragraph. The article says, these photographs provide, quote, the most compelling circumstantial evidence that Serbian troops executed at least several hundred military-aged men and boys as part of an ethnic cleansing campaign. In the ancient world, a mass grave would not have proved anything. It would not have changed the, the fervor on anybody's part. It would have simply showed that the people who poured bodies into that mass grave were pretty powerful people. But now it's, it's decisive in terms of legitimacy. It's, it's exactly what we talked about, I think, last week when we said that the, at, the, at the crucifixion the tombs of the Holy Ones are opened and the bodies come out. You cannot keep these things sealed up. You cannot sacralize them anymore because the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the touchstone, the criterion for judging everything. So, for Luke, this reference to the stone the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone becomes the launching point for the, a series of apocalyptic texts. I want to speak about those texts. And in order to put them in some kind of context, I want to go to the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel is the Old Testament apocalyptic text par excellence. And it's the one to which many Christian apocalyptic writers returned. And we find something there that we have to take into account when we think about the stone the builders rejected, become, rejected becoming the cornerstone. Particularly if we want to understand why it is that as uh, the Luke and Jesus tells us, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. The obvious reference here is to the Isaiah uh, passage, which is actually quoted in the Lucan text, but there's one other reference, and that's in Daniel. And so I want to go to that text and just read that and reflect on it for a second. Daniel is the last, the latest book in terms of chronology in the, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. It was written probably between 167 and 164 B.C., so within 
200 years of the crucifixion. It was written at a time of the Maccabean revolt. The Syrians had taken control of Israel. There was a uh, the, the Maccabees had had uh, launched a, a, a rebellion, which was finally crushed. And da the Book of Daniel was written during that time. It's filled with patriotic stories of great valor of, of, of those who suffer the persecution at the hands of of pagans. Uh, Daniel himself has has a, a career that's much like Joseph in Egypt. He rises to a prominence in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so I don't want to get into the details of the book because we have so much more to do, but I do want to look at this story in the second chapter of Daniel, which is kind of a funny story, but at the same time uh, quite important. It's, it's one of those stories that shows, to me at least, that it's when, you, when one reads on into the New Testament, past the crucifixion and beyond resurrection one can come back and read these stories with a with a much greater sense of their real significance and the story is that Nebuchadnezzar is the is the king with all these powers except he's haunted by this anxiety which takes the form of a dream that he's he's haunted by and he wants his experts in these matters to, to explain the dream to him. So he calls together his soothsayers, his magicians, and his wise people, and his astrologers, and the whole crowd, you know. And he says to them, I have this dream that's haunting me. I want you to tell me what it means. And they said, fine, tell us the dream. He said, you're just, you're, you're just trying to buy time. You, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me what it means. And they said, well, look, you haven't told us the dream yet. <laughs> he said, "If you don't tell me what this dream means, I'm going to, I'm going to, to, to destroy you. I'm going to cut you limb from limb." And uh, so they said, "Well, you know, we don't know the dream, so we can't tell you." So he said, "Okay, I'm going to destroy." So he says to his executioner, "Destroy them all. I'm sick of all these people. You know, they can't tell me what my dream means. So one of them they're going to destroy, who happens to be also considered part of the illiterati, I guess, is uh, is Daniel." And they come, the executioner comes to get Daniel, and he says, well, wait a minute, uh, let's not be too hasty. I, let me go. He goes to his friends, and he says to his friends, pray that God will inspire me. And lo and behold, God did inspire him in a vision, and he knew the answer. He knew the, the dream, and he knew how to interpret it. And before he goes to the king to interpret it, he says a prayer, which is his thanksgiving for being thus informed as to the king's dream. He says, Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are his. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So the source, like this goes back to, to the, the, the epistemological question. The source of this insight is not learning, erudition, high IQ, any of that. It's, it's the... the self-revealing God of the biblical tradition encountered in prayer is the source of this new lucidity and uh, and uh, Daniel acknowledges such by this prayer and then he goes to the king and he says first of all I want to tell you that my expertise in this matter has nothing to do with me or you or how much I know it's just the God that I've prayed to who's brought light on this matter so he straightens that out and then he says, here was your dream. You dreamed that there was this huge statue that had a head of gold 
and a and a arms and shoulders of silver, and a, a torso and thighs of of um, of bronze and feet of iron and clay. And then there was this stone, not cut by human hands, which struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Now, remember, was it in, when we were doing Luke or before, we were talking about the ontological density and so on. This can be read at that level as well. But it also comes into the, the thematic of Luke's gospel, which is, if you're not gathered with me, you'll be scattered. This stone, uncut by human hands, crashes into this statue, which is the statue of dynasty. It's the statue of, of uh, conventional culture. It's, it's the project, as the existentialist would say. It's the project of human cultural enterprise. And suddenly this strange stone, unhewn by human hands, smashes into it because it's idolatrous. And it scatters it to the corners of the earth. And then the last phrase in this uh, rendition of the vision is, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, this, is, this correlates with the, the Johannine Jesus saying, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. See, the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone of, a, of, of, a, of an enterprise which will eventually sweep the world. Now, that's very powerful. And, he, so that's, and then he interprets it exactly that way. He says, you have this kingdom... And uh, it will just generate, generate, generate. It will be shattered by the, the iconoclastic revelation of the real God, the true God, the living God. And out of that will, will come a kingdom which will reign forever and eventually uh, prevail all over the earth. What that story has to do with, and I think what the, the corresponding texts in the Gospel of Luke have to do with, is what's going on in human history. What's going on in human history, and what are its driving forces? So, every time you look around, you see things which cry out for an answer to the question, what's going on in human history? And the simple answer to that question is, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And those who... Who, on whom that stone falls are crushed by it and those who, are, who trip over that stone and are scandalized by it fall. And that's why human history has become such a, such a messy affair because we aren't able to clean up the mess in the old sacrificial way. At the very moment that all this is going on in the gospel, Jesus and his disciples are standing there looking at this great monument to culture as usual. I mean, it's not exactly cultural, cu culture as usual. It's not the kind of, uh, a, a kind of crazy pagan culture that's going on outside Jerusalem, but it's a monument to, to culture that has sacrifice at its center. And Jesus knows exactly what's happening. Not one stone will be left on another and so on and so forth. He's already said that. 
the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But it's going to be re-echoed here in an interesting context because his disciples, there's the, the atmosphere at this point in the gospel is filled with apocalyptic themes. And the disciples at that very moment do something that seems totally out of character. It says, quote, when some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said to them, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. It will all be thrown down. It will all be torn apart. So with this prediction of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the Luke and Jesus begins the... Uh, eschatological or apocalyptic uh, passages in uh, Luke's gospel. And I want to reflect on those a little bit and then, uh, and then read them and think about them. First of all, Luke is writing late in the first century, not as late as the Gospel of John. People have often said that the Gospel of John exhibits uh, a realized eschatology. Eschatology just means the, the eschaton is the end time. Uh, we don't realize what a radical thing this is. You know, uh, the Jews, in a sense, invented history uh, as the, the, the notion that history is going someplace, that it's a linear and not a circular process, uh, is is uh, a contribution that that uh, the, the uh, biblical tradition has given to the world. So in many ways, you could say the Bible invented time, chronological time as we know it. Uh, or at least saw time as saw saw history as the medium uh, with which or in which God was going to make His self-revelation to the world, and that it would be progressive, that it develops, uh, and that whole idea. And I talked about a couple of weeks ago how, uh, beginning with the maybe the Renaissance and certainly the Enlightenment, we secularized that notion into the superficial idea of progress. Uh, and then when that didn't pan out, uh, we uh, we had nothing left but a kind of despair or nihilism or something which you see happening uh, in our world today. In any event, the point is that, the, that this idea that something's happening in history is a is a, uh, a Jewish idea, and the apocalyptic tradition was an offshoot of that in a way. The prophetic tradition was aware of the fact that something was happening in history and it had to do with uh, taking care of those that are outcast and so on. It, was, it really was a precursor to what is revealed in, uh, in Jesus' life and death. But the prophets, for the most part, even when they're in their, uh, in, in their doom and gloom phase, the prophets, for the most part, are optimistic about history. But later on, the, the room for optimism seemed to shrink and you got the apocalyptic uh, people, the, the author of the book of Daniel is a classic example, who see that the history is in such a bad fix that they have two alternatives. One is to throw in the towel and to say, well, we're never going to get out of this, which is in a sense to say, well, it's always, you know, we're just going around in circles, we're going nowhere. And, and to do that is to exit the biblical tradition. The other alternative was to say, well, if this thing is going to be made to approximate even remotely the kingdom, it's going, God's going to have to break in on it violently and settle the scores and change everything, a kind of 
biblical version of the deus ex machina coming in and changing everything, the final judgment, you know. And so that was part of the biblical tradition. The New Testament writers and people of faith took over this eschatological vision of things and they saw that what happened, what Jesus represented, was going was where the world was going. That eventually the revelation that represented by Jesus' life and death would be a full revelation. The whole world would recognize it. Uh, and they saw that as the eschaton, the end time. And getting from here to there was what history was all about. The first generation of Christians thought that eschaton was going to come right away. They thought Jesus was going to come right away. They were prepared to go at any minute. So the second coming was just about to happen. And by the time John writes the last gospel, uh, he, he has what they call realized eschatology. That is to say, the, esch the eschaton happens right now. The eschaton is the crucifixion. So that they're the two things, the crucifixion and the end time, are superimposed on them. Luke is somewhere in between. He sees history going someplace. He knows it's going to be a long haul. On the other hand, what's interesting about Luke, and here, here he shares this to some extent with the author of Gospel of John, is that one can, one can experience the eschaton right now. One can experience what's happening right now. In other words, we go out the door and you see what's going on in the world, and if you want to see it correctly, you, can, you see it in terms of the revelation that Jesus represents what it is doing to conventional culture and where all this is going. And so you see the, the various machinations of historical and cultural life, but you see them with clearer eyes because you understand the dynamic, you understand the process, you understand that it's going to involve a lot of crisis, and you're be better able to, to see it. So I think Luke would say we have to see the revelation of the kingdom happening gradually in history all the time. And I was made keenly aware of this by reading one of the commentaries that I read this week, which is uh, John Donahue's commentary. And he says the following. He's talking about uh, Luke's eschatological uh, writings or the eschatological passages in Luke's gospel. And he says the following. Quote, I argue that the mixed eschatological posture of Luke is not due simply to a crisis over the delay of the second coming, nor does it reflect the emergence of a, quote, early Catholicism, which substituted timeless truth for eschatological urgency. Luke is accused of that sometimes. Rather, Luke wanted to shift the locus of the saving event from the eschaton, the end time, to the cimeron, the everyday of Christian life. Cimarron means the daily, the everyday. For Luke, says Donahue, eschatological existence means daily realization of the crisis brought to human history by the life and teaching of Jesus rather than a preoccupation with the end of history. End quote. Now, I would change that slightly. I would, because when Donahue says... Uh, the crisis brought by the life and teaching of Jesus, I think it's much better to say the life and death of Jesus because it's the cross. It's Christ crucified, as Paul says, that we preach. Nevertheless, with that one quibble, 
I think Donahue has said something very profound because he's talked about eschatological existence. You see? He says, for Luke, eschatological existence means the daily realization of the crisis brought to human history by the life and teaching, and I would say death, of Jesus rather than the preoccupation with the end of history. So eschatological existence means seeing the world in terms of that historical sweep of things, that historical perspective. This is what's happening in the world. And if you want to understand what's going on, you see it from that point of view. That's, I think, the, the, uh, the, the intellectual leg legacy of the New Testament in terms of understanding history. So, it's in that light that I would say we should read the following text, which are the Lucan uh, eschatological or apocalyptic text. Uh, and they go this way, and it's, this is Jesus speaking. He says, quote, When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. This is the Lucan Jesus uh, trying to uh, discourage this idea that it's about to happen. <coughs> then Jesus said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and plagues and signs and portents and all, and all of that. I, I want to think for a little bit here about nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms as a, as a symptom of the eschatological journey in a way a symptom of, a, of an apocalyptic shift that may take place precipitously and disastrously or it may take place more gradually and move uh, with less uh, immediate catastrophe towards an eschatological fulfillment. But in any, in any event, it is, it is symbolized by nations rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. One of the things, again, that I tried to do in Violence Unveiled is to show that there's a moment not so much chronologically as, as in terms of an anthropological perspective. There's a moment when cultures shift from the purest form of the sacrificial recipe, which happens just in terms of the culture <coughs> itself, inside the culture. They shift to another another modality of sacrificial culture generating activity which is they take the sacrificial passions and direct them against their historical enemy so you, this is in in violence unveiled i i located this shift not chronologically now but anthropologically at the moment when uh, the israelites cross the jordan opposite jericho that, that, that phrase, opposite Jericho, mean, to me, symbolizes this period in, in history when we generate our solidarity because we are all against them. You see? That's the form of the sacrificial uh, mechanism that functions. It's a kind of quasi-sacred form or quasi-religious form that that still is able to produce some kind of sacrality and, and some kind of uh, really powerful social consensus. And one of the symptoms of the collapse of all that is nations rising against nations, kingdom against kingdom. In other words, 
that is a phase in human history. And this really is almost the burden of, of uh, violence unveiled, is to say this, is, this phase is now over. The phase is, the, that, that's in the first chapter when I talk about history in quotation marks, that's what, I'm trying, that's what I was trying to argue, that, that we can't do it anymore because now we're too aware of the victims, even though they're foreigners. Uh, the very, you know, we send the bombers over, and right after, and even before we send the bombers over, we send the camera crews over to interview the victim, so that we can't do it anymore. You see, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the game is up. But I think that correlates interestingly with this prediction that nations rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. That's a phase in in the unfolding drama of Christian eschatology. It just means that the old, more primitive form of the sacrificial system isn't working, and for a while this other innovative system is. Anyway, Jesus thing goes on. Before all this occurs, they will arrest you, persecute you, hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. And to say before this occurs, now, the Gospels are often dealing with things that are happening in the communities for which the Gospels are written. And there were these tensions in almost every case in the New Testament. But if one asks, is there an anthropological reference here too? And I think it might be this, that going back to this idea of the victim's epistemological privilege. Instead of saying, before all this happens, we could say, before you'll be able to recognize it, you'll have to experience some of that persecution yourself. And then you'll, your eyes will be more open. You'll be able to see, you'll be able to experience what Donahue calls eschatological existence. Only after you've had some experience, first-hand experience with persecution. Well, if not first-hand experience, at least been able to identify with the persecuted ones or see the world from the point of view of the persecuted ones. At that point, you're in a better position to experience eschatological existence, to have an eschatological existence, because then you can see what's actually happening. I think that might be one way of reading uh, this text that says, before all these things happen, you will be persecuted. But then Jesus says, this, this persecution is an opportunity for you to bear witness. And so when it happens, make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. Now, this is very interesting because Jesus, this is before the crucifixion. Jesus is talking to people still, uh, who are still caught up in the little fog of the epistemological fog that exists prior to the, to the cross. And he says to them, when they, later on when you're being persecuted, do not prepare any defense. The defense will be prepared for you. And what is the defense? You see, if the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, you don't need to say anything. You see, those the the the, the uh, Muslim men and boys who were buried in that mass grave in Bosnia didn't have to say anything because the moral power that that took you know that that sent that spy satellite over and the, and the U-2 planes over to take those photographs, the moral determination to find out, see the thing from the point of view of the victim, will be there. And that will be your vindicator. 
the point is that once the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, there will be a moral force at loose in the world which will which will tend towards the, your vindication if you're ever one of the persecuted ones. So then Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which is actually, what actually happened in the year 70. So when Luke is writing this, it's pretty easy to predict it because he can just remember it. But Jesus says, when it happens, leave the city. If you're out of the city, don't come back to the city. For these are the days of vengeance. The days of vengeance. In other words, I think that sums up the apocalyptic time. The days of vengeance. The old sacrificial system existed to put a stop to the cycles of revenge that, that uh, tended, tend to get generated in a, in a world falling into a sac sacrificial crisis or a sacrificial vortex, the cycles of revenge. And that's, for example, what's happening now in the former Yugoslavia. You just get this terrible cycle. It's the days of vengeance. There's no way to break it. The old sacred system used to break it because it would introduce into that cycle of reciprocal violence a sacred violence that was so powerful both physically and metaphysically that it put a dead stop to the violence. It blew a whistle and stopped it. And as soon as that power loses its metaphysical force, which is what it loses once it's demythologized by the cross, when it loses its metaphysical force, there's no increase in physical force that can make up for what, it's, for what it lost in metaphysical force. So you're, you're, we're back into the days of vengeance. In other words, if we still live in the old way, except for one thing, which is that we no longer have that tool for ending the cycle of vengeance, then we'll inherit the days of vengeance. And that passage ends by Jesus saying, all these terrible things will happen. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, the term Gentiles here is ethnos, nations, the age of the nations. And again, this is not biblical commentary or biblical interpretation. It's a kind of an anthropological midrash. That's what I'm doing, I suppose. But I would say the age of nations has to be fulfilled. To me, it's that interim period, which is no longer the old sacred system, Exactly, because it's much more secularized. It's still sacralized to some extent. Uh, it's still the kind of... It has a sacrality to it, but it doesn't have the old form of sacrality exactly. But it's, it's the, the form of the nation, the ethnos, the uh, ethno, uh, ethnic nationalism is a term we have today for what, a lot of what's going on in the world. It's a kind of spasm of the, the only form of uh, sacrality that, that can still survive uh, at the margins of what we call Western culture. Uh, and so he says the days of the Gentiles or the je days of the nations will eventually be fulfilled. As, and t as I read it, that means there comes a moment when you can't do it that way anymore.
that's echoed, by the way, in the next line, because Jesus says, there will be signs in the moon, the sun, the stars, and on the earth, distress among nations. This phrase here, sometimes translated, nations in agony. And the word distress is the word which means to hold together or press together. A kind of bringing together which doesn't quite work, causes agony, more agony than, than harmony. A unification that causes more agony than harmony. So the glue becomes a, a, an explosive. It no longer, it shatters instead of bringing together. I wanted to do something, this is another thing I've done before, but it's, I think it just has to be done anytime we talk about the apocalyptic discourses. And that is something that comes out in uh, the second letter to the Thess Thessalonians. And this is one in which this term, the catacomb, is used. And I'll just read this passage and then uh, ask us to think about it in terms of uh, eschatological or apocalyptic uh, things. Here's the passage. About the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers, and our being gathered to him. There's that gathering idea. Please do not be too easily thrown into confusion or alarmed by any manifestation of the Spirit or any statement or any letter claiming to come from us suggesting that the day of the Lord has already arrived. Never let anyone deceive you in this way. It cannot happen until the great revolt has taken place. And there has appeared the lawless one, the doomed one. Surely you remember my telling you this when I was with you. And you know too what is still holding him back from appearing before his appointed time. Holding back the lawless one. This, this term holding back is this term catacomb, the restraining force. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who restrains, the catacomb, is to do so only for a time until he is removed from the scene. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. The breath of his mouth means the word, means the gospel. So this lawless one is now being restrained by the catacomb. And the, there will come a point when the catacomb no longer functions. And the lawlessness will have no restraint. The lawless one will no longer be restrained by it. And then it will. there's only one force in the world that can destroy it, and that's the gospel itself. And the catacomb, and this goes back, by the way, to uh, Thomas Hobbes, who's the father of modern political thought, who saw the catacomb this way. That's what the Leviathan is. The catacomb is the the force of human conventional human culture you see the power of the state the catacomb is the raw force that holds this lawless one in check and i would say the catacomb in this sense really does apply to that to that uh, historical epoch which is nations versus nations this gets very complicated in a certain way but uh, carl schmidt who was this mad genius uh, thinker who w was the legal theoretician for the Nazis, 
He said, you have to, you, we, we simply don't know how to have culture without knowing exactly who our enemies are. We have to know who our enemies are. And we have to believe that they are enemies metaphysically. You see, they can't be accidentally, conditionally our enemies. They have to be really our enemies. And unless we know that, we'll never hold culture together. That's, that's the essence of the catacon, to create culture that has that kind of certainty. The catacon will hold the lawlessness in check, but, Second Thessalonians says, it will one day collapse and the lawless will be let free, will, be, will break free of its constraints. And then only the gospel, which is here referred to as the breath of the mouth of the Lord, which is the word, the logos, the gospel logos, only that will destroy the lawless one. So here you have Second Thessalonians, again, in a sort of marvelous intuition about human history, saying that the, the age of that kind of political power restraint was a limited one. And the, point, the time would come because of the gospel revelation when the restraining power of the catacomb would, would fail and there would be nothing left but the lawless one and the gospel. So there's that very powerful theme in the in all the apocalyptic discourses in the New Testament, Luke's included. It's time to bring this to a conclusion. There's so many things left undone here. I'm not sure how exactly to bring it to conclusion, but I'll, I'm going to trust the Spirit. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, the way Luke brings it to a conclusion is quite stunning, really. Here's what happens. Uh, Jesus has been uttering all these things, apocalyptic things, and then suddenly he says... He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things happening, and these things are all these terrors he's talking about. So when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, now look, he has likened all this. He's talked about all, this, all these terrible things. Nations against nations, outbreaks, suffering, persecution, catastrophe. And then he's likened the whole thing to leaves coming out in the spring. I mean, it's an absolutely amazing parable to describe this. But he's using it in order to say, it's at that moment when you see these things, you have to realize what is very difficult for you to realize unless you are an eschatological being. And that is that what is actually happening is that the kingdom is breaking in on the human constructs that were constructed in order to keep it out. The kingdom is breaking in on human history. And if you see that, you won't panic. You'll meet the responsibilities you have because of that situation. You'll be able to take advantage of the opportunities that that situation provides for you, the opportunity to bear witness and to be part of the eschatological unfolding. What this means is that as I said earlier, we go out the door, you look or you open the newspaper, 
and you see these things happening and you s- and instead of just throwing your hands up or pulling your hair up one has to meet the responsibilities that they imply or that they uh, confront us with but if we we begin by seeing them in some kind of eschatological context and appreciating what's going on so that we don't panic because one of the ways of panicking once the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone one of the ways of panicking is to identify with the latest victim and then reconstitute the whole sacrificial system in defense of that victim so that now now we know who the who, who the victim is and now we know where the where the righteous violence really ought to go and so we crank up some more righteous violence and aim it at the the last victimizers and we start the whole process over again that's not to say that we shouldn't run to the aid of the victim we shouldn't run to the aid of the victims in such a way that we regenerate the process and I think that's all part of being an eschatological being that we don't get caught up in it again and Jesus in a sense warns against that at the very end of this discourse he says be on your guard be alert don't be caught up in the in in the in all of this uh, confusion that goes on be alert at all times praying that you will have the strength to survive all these things and to stand before the son of man so be alert and pray or you could say he says be alert praying all the time we have to connect those two praying and being alert relate to one another that's how you stay alert so you have a you have a transcendent reference at all times, which is the source of our lucidity when the world is full of scandals. I kind of saved these texts out till the end, even though they're a little bit out of out of uh, sequence. Part of part of this discourse involves Jesus talking about how the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then, and only then, will you see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. And then he says, when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And I would connect that. That's uh, verse 28 of chapter 21. And I would connect that with verse 19 of chapter 21 when Jesus is talking about the same kind of crisis says by your endurance you will gain your soul by your endurance you will gain your soul that's the gospel right there and it that word endurance is hupomene which is the word that it and it means to translate patience but it's it's a more active verb than that it's it's passive it's it's not overtly active but it is an act. Upomene is an act of endurance that is not simply, well, I'm going to endure this, but that the endurance is a commitment. And, it's, and it says here, by your endurance you will gain your souls. And Simone Weil has a whole thing on this, uh, this notion of, of Upomene in her little book called Waiting for God because Upomene really is translated waiting. But again, not waiting in the ordinary sense. And Simon Weiss says, the attitude that brings about salvation is not like any form of activity. The Greek word which expresses it, expresses it is upomene, 
It is waiting or attentive and faithful immobility that lasts indefinitely and cannot be shaken. And the, this passage in Luke says, by your endurance or your waiting in that special way, you will gain your soul. You will gain your soul. The implication here is, of course, that if one doesn't endure, the alternative to hupomene is vengeance. It's retaliation. It's reciprocating. It's scandal. It's getting caught up in it. So if by your endurance you gain your soul, by scandal and vengeance and reciprocity of, uh, of response and all that, you lose your soul. If you want to lose your soul, you do that. You get, And then you just get caught up in that whole melodrama which very quickly will become madness. It says here uh, one has to stand uh, before the Son of Man. I think only our identification with the crucified one can, can make us capable, potentially capable, of the kind of endurance that's required for us to gain our souls. It's a, it's a form of the imitation of Christ. In other words, if I'm enduring just because, well, I'm a pretty tough guy and I can take it, it's not going to produce, it's not going to uh, gain my soul for me. That's not going to, all that's going to do is make me tough. I'm, I'll be Gordon Liddy or something. But, I mean, the point is, in order for it to be something that, that insoles us, it has to be done in the name of the crucified one. Not because we're, you know, we have a strong character or something like that. What does it mean if there's this person who is able to endure all this? This enduring isn't... An, it's a social act. It's a social act. All of that craziness is then absorbed and you don't... The, new, the numbers don't compute because you could say, well, look, there, you know, there, there are now 6 billion people in the world and there are only about 1,500 who can do this. I mean, let's just say that, you see. <laughs> That's all it takes. You see what I mean? Strategically located. That's why the gospel has to be preached to the corners of the earth. That's all it takes. In other words, at a, at a, at a moment of, of crisis, or, or at a time of crisis, people who can perform this act, which is simply the act of the cross, it's just take up your cross and follow me. In little ways, it doesn't mean that, oh, well, I'm going to be a martyr and uh, you know, that'll be quite a big deal. It won't be so much fun going through it, but then I'll be remembered forever or something like that. That's not it. It's little things, you know, the office meeting, you know, the gossip at the water fountain. I mean, it could be anything like that or family, the tensions within the family. If, if we can endure or wait, be patient in the presence of that and absorb all of that confusion, we can... And we do that by, by being eschatological beings, by understanding what's going, understanding in quotation marks, in our minds and hearts what's going on in history, and, and following Christ, which is always to say, follow the example of the crucified one.